If you open your Bibles to the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 5. And while you're turning there, when, we, uh, when I pray this morning, we do want to remember uh, um, our vets, as we have, uh, you've probably heard a lot about honoring vets over the past couple of days. Uh, we know that uh, in the world we live in, because of the curse of sin, conflict is commonplace. And uh, even though it seems more and more that various conflicts, um, the, the line between who is right and who is wrong is muddied uh, because of politics and because of money and because of all kinds of things. And, um, but nonetheless, we are grateful for those who are willing to put their life on the line. Uh, and uh, we know that we still enjoy a great deal of freedoms because of what's happened in the past for those who served that way. And we are grateful for those who serve. So we want to remember them as we pray. Uh, and then also, as we sang this morning, um, we want to make sure we remember the persecuted church. Uh, and, and that's, you know, remember that all the things going on in the Middle East, you have Christians, Jewish believers in Israel, you have Palestinian believers in Palestine. Um, it's difficult for them for many different reasons. And then now this just added on top, which is not really new, except that it's just now uh, more of it going on. And it's just, uh, it's hard, I think, for us to imagine what it's really like to live in that setting. I'm grateful that we're not. Uh, it, it's just hard to imagine the kind of uh, pressure you may feel and you're, and you're under. But we know that there are many believers there that are, their greatest concern is for their families and their loved ones to know, to know the Lord. Um, they're more concerned about that than they are the conflict ending. They want the conflict to end, but they understand that what's at stake is the soul of mankind, and that is what's most important. So let's pray. Fathers, we bow before you this morning. Father, how we hate war and conflict. It's, it's a blight on man, and yet, Lord, it stands as a very clear example of what man is apart from God. And so, Father, we are grateful for those who have served to protect our freedoms, to, to protect our right to, to worship you. It is sad that we still require a military, but we do. And we're thankful for those who've served and those who are serving now. And Father, when it comes to the Middle East and the enormous mess that is taking place there, the unbelievable violence that is going on, the atrocities that are happening that some we hear about, maybe a great deal we don't. It's difficult to imagine the hardships that many people are undergoing is difficult to fathom. But we pray that you would strengthen the believers. I know, Lord, that there are many that are seeking to show mercy and to be gracious and to help their fellow man and to do so, Father, because they love you, they care about you, and they want the gospel of Jesus Christ to be heard and understood. And we ask that you would bless them and you would help them. We pray that they would get the aid that they so desperately need. But we pray, Lord, that they would remain strong in you. It seems, Lord, that 
for the believers living in those kinds of situations, it seems that for most of them, their faith really rarely falters. It's, it's amazing to think about. But we ask, Lord, that they would be strengthened, and that you would provide for them. We do thank you again, Lord, that we have the freedom really to gather in ease and comfort to worship you. We have no fear of someone popping in and shooting us with a gun. We have no fear of missiles being launched or worried about sirens going off that warn us of missiles coming. We thank you, Lord, that we still do not yet live in a place where we have to worry about the government or maybe the government allowing other groups or agencies to come and to harass us because we are Christians. Even though, Lord, we see the tide of our culture turning more and more openly and blatantly against Christians and what we believe, we still yet, Father, are suffering little in comparison. And we are grateful that we can gather here today again in peace and safety. And Father, our desire is to honor you, is to worship you, to, to show our gratitude. And we, we not only want to worship you, Father, we know from your word that as we gather to worship you, as we gather to hear you speak from your word, to be instructed in righteousness, we know, Lord, that our faith in you will be strengthened and our hearts will be encouraged. And Father, we desire that. That, Father, we may be used by you in the lives of others, in encouraging others with the gospel if they are believers, in explaining the gospel to those who are non-believers. We pray, Lord, you would help us as believers to pursue righteousness and to recognize, Lord, the importance of that. And so, Father, we thank you again that we possess your word. We thank you, Father, for the ministry of your spirit. And we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Matthew chapter 5, verses 7 through 10. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they have persecuted the prophets who were before you. As I mentioned last week, as we go through what we normally call and, and correctly call the Beatitudes, the word that is translated blessed really could be, or some even say should be, translated as happy. Happy are the merciful. Happy are those who are pure in heart. Or maybe fortunate uh, are these individuals. Happy are those who develop the characteristics that are described here by Jesus. <laughs> Again, remember that this is not a list of, of different groups of individuals. This is describing really that, that group of people that possess all of these things. These are individuals that are blessed. This is what they are like. This is what they are blessed with. The, the term here, blessed, refers to the one who is the object of grace and is happy because of it. God has been gracious to me and I'm, I'm happy. I am blessed because of God's grace and God's mercy. So when he says, blessed are the merciful, don't think of this like, oh, okay, I, I want to receive mercy, so I need to strive to be merciful. That's not what this is doing. He says, blessed are the merciful. That's the person who's already being merciful. He's describing this individual who believes in the Lord. This is an individual who's committed himself to Christ. This is what they are like. And that's why this person is happy, because they're this way. This is how we should be. 
Yes, there is this idea that we should pursue this, but this is not a list of a, a kind of a self-help manual where you take all the Beatitudes and list them one by one and say, okay, I'm going to pursue mercy and then I'm going to pursue... Be no, this is a description. As believers, we should be looking at this and asking ourselves, does this describe me? Am I merciful? Now, there's a blessing in this because he does tell us that as one who is showing mercy, I will receive mercy. But again, this is not where I set out to be merciful so I can get mercy from God. That's not what's being described here. Merciful is the one who is compassionate, the one who responds to the needs of others, where you seek to meet the needs of others. You then will be the one that receives mercy when you need it. God is the one who is behind this. So I'm going to read you kind of a, a collection of things that I, that I put together that I found that is the view from the world. And it can sound really good, but it's not good. Let me read it to you. This is the secular worldview. And, and I'm using the word kindness for, mercy, for merciful. It's not a bad exchange. The technical meaning of mercy, when we receive mercy from God, is there's the withholding of punishment we deserve. But the word can also be used in describing being kind to others. So I'm going to be using the word kindness in what I read. So these are, this is the view of the world. In a world that is constantly in flux, kindness is the only constant. It's what keeps us going when everything falls apart. It doesn't have to cost anything at all. And it makes a difference in this ever-changing world. We need kindness now more than ever before. And we should try our best to show kindness at every opportunity. When we show kindness to others, it has a positive effect on our mood. We feel good about ourselves and our actions. And we know that we're making a difference in the world. Kindness is one of the most important things we can offer to others. And it's something that we should all strive to show more of. When we're kind to others, it often comes back to us in the form of kindness when we need it most. Now, when you read through that, it can sound really, there's parts of it that are, that are true, but there's a lot that's missing from that. The main thing is there's no why. Why should we be kind? Are you only being kind because it makes you feel better? You know, that's a kind of a selfish motive. Imagine if we were only kind because we wanted to feel better. What about those of us who don't care if we feel better? Now we don't need to show kindness. It, it, that, that's not why we do that. Also, when it comes to this, it, it makes kindness to be the thing, hoping that maybe wishing it might come back to you. Where is God in all of this? So this is a, a secular viewpoint that says, well, this is how we really should live, but there's no reason why we should live this way. It says it's important, and we know, we know that it's important. It also says it's the most important thing, which I would disagree with. It's not the most important thing. There are things more important than that. But this is the view of the world, and so it's very easy to get caught up in that and to begin to move away from our very distinctive view of life as Christians in trying to live out this kind of idea. And many Christians move in this realm, and we begin to... Uh, lose our identity as Christians, as those who belong to Christ. We want to be known as those who are kind. I mean, who doesn't want to be known for being kind? And I'm not saying that you're not going to be known for that, but I don't want to be known only for that. This isn't about me building my ego. This isn't about me trying to look good in, in the face of others. My devotion should be to Christ. 
if, if I'm going to be merciful, it's because of what he has done for me. And I'm showing mercy to others because of him. Because he poured his love in my heart, I'm able to show mercy to others. As a bonus or as a blessing, because this is by makeup, because I love the Lord, God is promising me, not, I'm, not, I'm not just hoping that I'll be, you know, that someone will show me kindness one day. When I need it, I'm going to get it. Not because I deserve it, but because God has promised that he's so involved in our lives that he is aware of those who are showing mercy and he's watching out for us. And when you and I need mercy, we will have it. It's a, it's a great, so that's why we're happy. We don't have to worry about the future. We don't have to worry about, is this going to happen to me or is that going to happen to me? My, my future can be trusted to the Lord. So this isn't a tit for tat where I do this for me, God, and you do that for me. That's not what this is. It's a description. So we need to ask ourselves, does this describe me? Now, I know what maybe many of us would say, well, yeah, but I can be more merciful. Well, then get with it. <laughs> I say that to myself, too. I'm not just saying that to you. Just get with it, you know? But express these things, and we don't have to be afraid. Don't be afraid of others taking advantage of you because you're being kind. Let the Lord take care of that. You just do this in obedience to what he says. Many believe that this beatitude is an illusion to what is said in other places in the Bible. And that's what's always important. When you go through the life of Christ and you look at his teachings, even though his teachings in a sense are new, it's not that they're not rooted in the Old Testament. These are concepts that God has already given to man. But he is further developing them. He's helping us to understand how these things can be true in my life. And of course, what we recognize as Christians is these things can be true in my life because God is the one who's creating this change in me. Proverbs 14, 21. Whoever despises his neighbor is a sinner, but blessed is he who is generous to the poor. And so we know we should be generous to the poor. I will say that when it comes to the poor, we do need to take into account how the Bible views the poor. Because we know we got some issues in our county and in our nation when it comes to those who are poor and even what that even means. In particular, you know, there's been more and more difficulty to those who are homeless. So a few things about them that's important for us to understand. A majority of those that are homeless do choose to be that way. They really, I've talked to many, I've talked to hundreds, both in the jail and outside of the jail. Those who stand on the street corner asking for help, you do know that probably, I'm guessing, but it's based on my discussion with many individuals, many of them, maybe 90%, but I can't say for sure, they have income. Amen. They're on Social Security, they're getting disability, they're, they're, they have money. This is extra for whatever the reason. Many of them have been offered places to stay and food, and there, but there's a rule. No alcohol, no drugs. And they refuse. Just so you know, they refuse. I've talked to the ones around here. I've, I've talked to them about work. And they've told me, a few of them, not all of them, so they say, well, I don't want to work. They don't. I was talking to one guy. It was really hard because he's, he's, he's very nice. I mean, he's incredibly nice. And he, you know, he, he told me, he said, well, you know, I, I do meth. It's Okay. And he was here. We'd already given him some food. He wanted some more food. And I said, I, said, I got to ask you a question. He said, well, what's that? I said, so you told me you, you're using meth. 
You want us to give you food. We give you food. You don't have to spend your money on food because you can use your food. You can use that money to buy meth. So we're helping you to buy meth. Do you think as a church we should be doing that? He looked at me and he said, well, thank you for your time. <laughs> just <laughs> so just so you know, when the Bible, because some individuals will say this, they try to put a guilt trip on you. Well, the Bible says, blessed are, you know, you, you need to take care of the poor. If you don't, you know, you're a sinner. And so when, when the poor ask, you need to give them. I'm like, okay, time out. Let's find out what the real need is first. Let's find that out. If they refuse that, that's, that's on them. That, that's not a non-Christian stance. So again, the, remember their greatest need, even with, and I, this one guy's name, his name was Justin. And I said, Justin, I said, just so you know, your greatest need is not to stop using meth. He said, really? I said, yeah, it's not your greatest need. It's a need. It's not your greatest need. I said, you need the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. I said, that's the most important thing. And he will help you to get over that. I said, but you know, if you come to the Lord Jesus Christ, we're turning our whole life over to him. Every aspect of our life. He was also very honest. He goes, yeah, that's a problem. <laughs> I said, yeah, it can be. The Amplified of Proverbs 14, 21 says, he who despises his neighbor's sins against God, his fellow man and himself, but happy and blessed and fortunate is he who is kind and merciful to the poor. Proverbs 17.5 says, Whoever mocks the poor insults his maker. He who is glad at calamity will not go unpunished. In the Septuagint, which is a, the Greek translation of the Hebrew text, it actually reads a little different, and it reads this way. He that laughs at the poor provokes him that made him. And he that rejoices at the destruction of another shall not be held guiltless. But he that has compassion shall find mercy. So what Jesus does is he takes these things and he kind of takes to the next level in his explanation. And the thing is, is again, it's not just this command that we're given to be kind or to be compassionate. He says he will make us this way. You will, for those who are rightly aligned with God, this is what they're like. So it's not, again, about me trying to make this another list, you know, make a list of things I have to do and remind myself to be kind to the poor. I'm going to, in a sense, spontaneously be compassionate towards others because I'm rightly related to God, because I, I believe in Christ. Again, we need to recognize that mercy is showing kindness. It's giving to the poor. It is also forgiving others. Jesus pointed that out in chapter 18 of Matthew uh, with the story of the unforgiving servant. Those who graciously forgive others can expect forgiveness from God. Showing mercy to others does not earn mercy from God, but it does express the humble repentance that is necessary to receive divine mercy. Then he goes on and says, Blessed are the pure in heart. That simply means to operate out of a proper motive. The reason why we do anything matters to God. So it's not only that we obey. Why do we obey? Why are you doing the things that you are doing? That's important to God. Psalms 24, verses 4 and 5 says, He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from God, from the God of his salvation. So the pure in heart then are those who reject idolatry. They are characterized by honesty. That's the pure in heart. They have, they have no hidden agenda. No agenda at all except to do what's right. 
Because it's right. Because God has told us what is right. He said, blessed are the peacemakers. This is not where you're out there trying to make peace among the nations. That's not a bad thing, but that's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about making peace among fellow believers. So being a peacemaker entails not only the promoting of unity, but also harmony between yourself and others. You do that by refusing to postpone apologies and restitution. You refuse to seek revenge, humbly serving your enemies, and having a love for others that is stronger than their hate. Now, just so you know, we oftentimes think of this kind of thing in the context of out there. We need to bring this in here like in your family. So you need to be a peacemaker in your family. So between husband and wife, you need to be a peacemaker with the husband and wife. That means you refuse to postpone apologies. You refuse to seek revenge. You humbly serve your enemy, if that's what you think your spouse is. You need to have a love for them that is stronger than their hate. God claims that such peacemakers, that he claims them as his sons and daughters on Judgment Day. They demonstrate that they are sons and daughters by manifesting the gracious character of their Heavenly Father. So you see, the peacemaker then is the one who's out there making peace with himself and others, promoting that unity. He is doing so by, by being the example. He is the one who is at peace with everyone else. The idea, you know, Romans says that as much as possible as it depends upon you, be at peace with all men. So that then means that if there's a conflict between you and someone else, you need to make sure that it is entirely their fault. Not that you're blaming them. We can always blame somebody. But that in actuality, it really is only their fault. Because you have done everything necessary to make for peace. You are not holding a grudge in your heart. You do not look at them with disdain. You are not the one that has, you know, a judgmental attitude or cynical towards that individual. You are not the one who's, who may even be verbalizing, yeah, well, they'll never come around. No, you want them to come around. You may recognize that there's not much of a chance for that, except you know that God can change the hearts of men. But you need to make sure that you have removed all the obstacles. That, that's how we are the peacemaker. We are all to be that. To be a peacemaker, again, by the way, never means that you compromise the truth. There are those who try to use that, sometimes in, in church disputes where maybe there's a dispute over doctrine. And that makes an easy example because we would say, well, of course. You know, if, if all of a sudden, let's say all of a sudden I, you know, I'm in a car wreck and I hit my head and I start denying the virgin birth and the resurrection. Well, you're not going to, what you shouldn't say is, well, we need to be nice and we need to be nice to Bob and be understanding. No. No, you don't need to be understanding. You may need to care for me, but you need to kick me out of the pulpit. Right? Right? That, 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 that's how it goes. If, if there's no other way to get around that. So being a peacemaker does not mean then that we compromise on anything that the Bible says. We don't compromise the purity of our life or the purity of our doctrine as an individual or in any other way. So again, this is not some passive, mealy-mouthed individual who's just you know, trying to make nice with everyone. Now, this is a, this is a, a stance of strength where you are willing to lay aside your ego for the sake of peace. But remember, not convictions, not truth, but definitely your ego. You're willing to do whatever it takes to make for peace, for the benefit of others and for the glory of the Lord. He says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. So in the context of what Jesus is giving here, the immediate context is this is living consistently with the standard of the law of Moses. Because that's who he's talking to 
the Jews that are, you know, his disciples and, and those other uh, Jewish people that are around. He's talking to them in the context of the law of Moses. They're under the law of Moses. So living consistently with the standard of the law of Moses, and this results in loving the neighbor as yourself, even if that brings persecution. And of course, we know that Jesus taught that. He, the story of the Good Samaritan is, is, is that, is the embodiment of that. Remember that the godly character and behavior that's described here may incite resentment that results in persecution. Sad to say, not only is this going to incite resentment and perhaps persecution among other believers or in society, this can happen not only within your family, between you and non-believers, this can also happen between believers. If you are, you can be persecuted for being righteous. Now, you can also be persecuted for being self-righteous. That's not what we're talking about here. But you can be truly pursuing righteousness. And you may have believers in your own family who will, in a sense, begin to turn against you. That doesn't mean that they're going to start a campaign to kick you out of the family. But it does mean that these individuals are not, are, are not are going to be maybe more rude to you. They're not going to want to be around you. They, they may more willingly listen to or start rumors about you. Um, they may treat you with disdain or disrespect. Because your righteousness puts a spotlight on their unrighteousness. Kind of goes back as to why did Cain kill Abel? It's a good question. Why did Cain kill Abel? Because you don't find the reason in the book of Genesis. But you do find it in the New Testament. And it gives us the reason. Oh, it's very profound. It's also very immature. It says that Cain killed Abel because his works were righteous. Cain was wicked. That was it. Abel, he didn't do anything to Cain. But because he was righteous, it exposed, put a spotlight on Cain's wickedness. And as a result, that led to him murdering his brother. And just so you know, some of you already know this, we went through 1 John, but when it comes to the killing of, of Abel, a lot of people say, you know, he, that they were having an argument and Cain pushed Abel and Abel fell down and hit his head on a rock. That's not in the text. Some say that Cain picked up a rock and hit his brother in the head. That's not in the text either. 1 John tells us why. It just so happens that in the Greek language, there's 11 words for kill. And the word that's used for how Cain killed Abel is the Greek word spazo, S-P-A-Z-O. That word is never used of a human being taking the life of another human being except once, and it's there. And the reason is because it's a word that is used primarily, if not only, for the ritual sacrifice, where when you place an animal on the altar, you slice its throat from ear to ear. And the reason why they would slice the throat is so that you know, the heart keeps beating and the blood comes pouring out. And I believe that that word was, spoke, was, was chosen by John on purpose, being led by the Holy Spirit to indicate how Cain killed Abel. It wasn't an accident. It wasn't where they were just in the, in the heat of the moment and Cain picked up a rock and smashed him. It was calculated. He intended to sacrifice his brother. And I believe I'm speculating a little bit, but I believe the reason why he killed him that way, it's like he was saying to God, you want a blood sacrifice? I'll give you one. Now, he may have been angry. Well, he was angry when he did it, but that's not an excuse. God doesn't say, well, I know you're angry, so we're going to let you go this time. That's not what happened. God was still merciful to him, but he held him entirely responsible for what he did. 
And so we need to make sure we keep these things in mind that when he speaks of this being persecuted for righteousness sake, that, again, this is not just us against the world. It includes that, but it's not limited to that. So again, persecution does not only happen with unbelievers coming against the believer, not only from outsiders, but from among your own family or your own peer group. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12 says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Just so you know that. You will be persecuted. That doesn't mean you'll be arrested. It could mean that, but it's not that. It doesn't mean that you're going to be uh, violently attacked. That could happen, but it's not limited to that. But it does mean that you will be persecuted. The word persecuted means to accuse. The idea there is that someone is following you zealously. They're putting pressure on you, where they've attached themselves to you because they are feeling cynical towards you. The idea is that, that they're, they're trying to make your life miserable. That's the idea behind being persecuted. You, you're being targeted. Whether you're being targeted by a group or by an individual, you're being targeted for, for whatever this abuse is going to be, major or minor. And, and he says, you should expect this. You don't try to make this happen, but it's going to happen. Matthew chapter 10, beginning in verse 34 Jesus says, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. So we're, again, the warning is there. We're told where this persecution may come from. So we know that on, then on top of the persecution, this is a, maybe a more difficult event to endure because of the sense of betrayal, because it's coming from those that you care about, from your own family, those that you love. But again, he says this is to be expected. We should not be surprised by this. So again, as he describes the character of the individual who's this believer, the one who's committed to God, not only do we have all these very positive traits and positive blessings coming towards them, there's also this. The, the, the life of the believer is not easy. He is going to be an outcast. For those who, who are, were raised in a Christian family, and your family was, you know, your parents were raised in a Christian family, and on what a wonderful blessing that is. It is difficult for us to understand how, how can it be that, that someone today can be a Christian in their family and their own family dislikes them. But it's very true. It happens on a regular basis. We should not be surprised by that. If you hear stories, which we do, of mothers who kill their own children, of fathers who kill their wife and their children, not because of anything religious, they're just, for whatever the violent reason is that's within them, where individuals turn against their family, and we think how, how horrendous that kind of thing is, then the lesser thing, in a sense, where you are ostracized by your family, whether it's just emotionally or maybe physically or whatever the case may happen to be, expect that. Some of you are familiar with Arnold Futenbaum. When he became a believer at age 16, he's being raised in an Orthodox Jewish home. When he became a believer at age 16, his father spoke to him at dinner and said, this will be the last time that I ever speak to you. He says, you are dead to us. And when you're 18, you must leave. On Arnold's birthday, he was 18. He was, he was in high school. He came home that day. There were suitcases outside in the yard, and the house, all the locks had been changed. 
he had a friend who was a Christian, and that Christian family took him in. So he had a place to stay. He did not speak to his mother or his father. They did not speak to him, I think, for his 20 years, 30 years. And then there seemed to be a little bit of a, a warmth. You know, his, his mom was the one who was kind of pushing it. Uh, I think his dad and mom even went on a tour of Israel with him once. His dad never said a word to him, but he went. And, and I don't remember the rest of the story. I don't know whatever happened to his parents. I don't know if they died in unbelief or if they died as believers. But I know that was heavy on his heart. But you know, that kind of thing goes on on a regular basis in many places. Maybe not as dramatic as that, but absolutely it takes place. I told you before when I was in Mauritius that um, I, there was not one single Christian that I met from Mauritius who did not have persecution uh, experience, that, who did not experience persecution from their own family. Every, every single one. Some to one degree, some to a greater degree, but every single one. Those who were converted from Hinduism, their families treated them as if they had um, rebelled and betrayed the family as well as their race and religion. There are those who were still allowed to live at home, but no one spoke to them. There were others who were kicked out in the street and were homeless. And the stories go on and on. There was a Muslim man that I met who became a believer. And when he did, uh, his <coughs> wife was allowed to divorce him. And so uh, she divorced him, went back to live with her father, with their three sons, and he was forbidden to have any contact with his sons ever. And so he did not see them again until they were in their 20s, and they, were, they found ways to seek him out just to talk to him a little bit, maybe in a market somewhere. But when I met this man, he was not cynical. He was not, he was not bitter. It's difficult to imagine that, having that being done to you only because you've become a believer. But that's what happened to him. And so what comes our ways is usually pretty mild compared to those things. But nonetheless, we're going to experience that. So I'll tell you that if you ever are made fun of, teased, or mocked because you're a believer, don't ever respond to that in kind, ever. Don't ever do that. That's wrong for you to do that. It's sinful for us to do that. God says we are to expect that. Not to be surprised by that because they hated Jesus first. And we are to return blessing for cursing in those situations. He goes on to be even more specific in, in uh, verse 11 of Matthew 5. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. So even though verse 10 was, I believe, related to the law of Moses, Jesus is not just repeating himself. He's changed something here. Now there's an additional issue that's added. And that is this, with the coming of the Messiah, anyone who wants to attain righteousness, which leads to the kingdom, must believe that Jesus is the Messianic King, must believe that he is a Savior. Salvation is granted to those who own him as such, and this will lead to persecution <coughs> because of his name. So this is not just a general uh, uh, hatred for someone who's doing right. What this is, this is more specific. This is because you're a Christian. Of course, it also means greater reward in, in the kingdom. So the idea here is, is where you tell someone, this is the easy way to tell, you tell them you're a Christian and they roll their eyes or things take a dramatic turn in your relationship with them because you're a Christian. 
In the day and age we live in, many people just assume that if you say you're a Christian, it means that you are certain things. And they have a disdain for that. It's kind of the popular place to be. And so we're going to experience more and more of that. It may be something only where people mock you on Facebook or call you names. It may go beyond that. But we should expect that. Again, Peter, I believe, makes it pretty clear to make sure, which we want to get to in a moment, to make sure that if you are insulted, that it's not because of your behavior. It's not because you're being evil. It is because truly of your righteousness or truly because of your standards and believer. Isaiah chapter 66, verse 5 says this, Hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word. Your brothers who hate you and cast you out for my namesake have said, Let the Lord be glorified, that we may see your joy, but it is they who shall be put to shame. The idea here is there's individuals who believe that they are taking the upper road as a Christian by hating you. That they're the ones who are in the right and you're in the wrong. They're the ones who are being loving. You're the one being judgmental. And you try to explain yourself when they won't allow you to do that. They will shout you down or whatever the case may happen to be. We're going to experience that. I believe that there are many reasons why it's important for us to gather as believers. But in one sense, this is our safe place. I hate using that term. It makes me sound like a mushy, wishy-washy guy. But, but we, we, we need that. We need to be with like-minded people. Those who understand and care and that it matters. This is where we're going to be encouraged and strengthened is this. As I've already said, for there are some here, you don't have the advantages that I have. My father's saved. My sisters, they know the Lord. My children, they know the Lord. I'm blessed by that. I have nieces and nephews, they know the Lord. I, I'm blessed by that. There are some who don't have that. This is, we are family, but this is their, in a sense, only family. Why it's such a tragedy if we mistreat them. If we don't apologize when we're rude or wrong. Or we, want, or we know the attitude where you want to take your ball and go home because somebody may have slighted you with something. Or we're not forgiving and kind. This kind of thing is very real. We just don't, we're just not aware of it much because we live in, really in a fabulous place. And there are, those, there are those believers in the world that experience this on a regular basis, maybe to an extreme level. But there's more and more of it coming our way. And so we, we need to be understanding of each other and of our difficulties and be trying to help each other out. 1 Peter 4.4 4 says, If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Even if no one else is aware of it, God is and it matters to him and he will bless you. So the idea then for the believers, it's not that you and I only brace for afflictions. This is not just so you can brace yourself. The Bible adds to this idea that we are to rejoice. So this isn't being giddy, but we are to rejoice. There's this deep sense of, of happiness, peace, and contentment. That's one of the best ways I can describe joy, that you possess when you experience this kind of persecution. You can tell your unsaved friends that you're a Baptist. You can tell your unsaved friends that you're a Presbyterian. You can tell them you're a Methodist. And there may be very little opposition. Tell them you're a Christian. Bring Christ's name into the conversation. Things may go a little different after that. Remember that when the word Christian was first coined, it was a term of derision. 
and ridicule and disdain. That's what it was. Where it tells us in Acts that this is where believers were first called Christians. That was a huge put down. It'd be kind of like how the media, the secular media uses it today. Yeah, well, they're a Christian. They're an evangelical fundamental Christian. That's how the world sees it. We don't see it that way, but the world does. Although the present experiencing experience of the disciple may involve suffering, Jesus did promise that our future was glorious. It really is. It's not just some statement so we can do the raw, raw thing and kind of get through it. It's reality. The idea here is that we will participate in, the, in reigning with the Messiah and enjoy all the benefits of the kingdom. And so here he says, you are blessed. You and I, we, that's why there really should be no such thing as an unhappy Christian. I'm not saying it doesn't mean you can never be sad. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that there's not going to be times when you have extreme sadness and grief. We're human beings. We're going to have that. But there is this idea, whether you want to use the word joy or happiness, we, we really should never be individuals who are unhappy. When I grieve the loss of my mother, in the midst of my sadness, I was happy for many things. That she loved me, that I loved her, that she raised me the way she did, that she went peacefully, that she knew the Lord, that I see her again. There's a lot of happiness in my sadness, a lot of joy. And so despite all these things that are going on around us, we are, we are to experience much happiness. And so I would challenge you as a believer that if you are not experiencing much happiness, there may be something amiss in your relationship with God. You are not meditating on his word. You are not fully depending upon him. You're not reaping the benefits of Christian fellowship, which includes being together, eating together, praying together, reading and studying the Bible together. It's all of those things. And we need that desperately. God seeks to bless us in many ways. And part of that is through the fellowship of believers, where he intends to bring to you and I great joy. And so when we read the Beatitudes, again, don't think of it again as a list of things that we should be pursuing. This is not self-help. This is describing the benefits that belong to the individual who's committed to Christ and the blessings that God will continue to pour upon them because this is the character that's being developed in them. We evaluate where we are in our walk with the Lord by these things. And we ask the Lord to help us in these things, to improve, to become more of these things, to become more like Jesus Christ. And part of that motivation is because we do want to be, we do want to receive mercy. I do want to be blessed. I want that. And I know you want that as well. But again, we don't receive mercy, per se, because we go out and start trying to show mercy today. No, we, we receive mercy because we come to Christ at the beginning. And it begins with him showing us mercy by forgiving us of all of our sin and our unrighteousness and adopting us into his family. What a great and wonderful, glorious, patient Savior we have. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you again for this sermon that Jesus preached and for what he describes here. Father, I know there are some here, some may be in small ways, but there are troubles 
in their relationships with others, maybe in their family or those that are close to them. And it, it probably, or it may boil down, it's because they're Christian. Because they're trying to live and pursue righteousness. Because they're trying to live a life that's committed to you. Because they have maybe laid aside their ego for the sake of Christ. And so that, that puts a spotlight on our sinful attitude, or on our sin, or on their sin. We pray, Father, you help us to stay the course. I pray, Lord, you help us to be understanding of each other. That those who come to join with us on Sunday, if we see someone who's troubled, Father, give us the courage and the boldness to ask them how they are. Give us, Father, the wherewithal to explain why we might be burdened. May we commit ourselves to truly praying for each other and caring for each other as we ought to. May we, Father, grow stronger and be encouraged in the refuge of the church, which is the body of Christ, as we live in submission to the head, who is Christ himself. And Father, for those this morning here who don't have that, because they've never submitted to Christ, we pray, Lord, that you put a spotlight on their loneliness. Put a spotlight, Lord, on the emptiness in their life. Pray, Lord, that your spirit would help them to see the distance between them and you and that the only bridge is Christ himself. They would believe in Christ and seek the forgiveness of their sins and enjoy the benefits of eternal life and a relationship with you. Encourage our hearts, Father. And we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.